Hi, I'm Kyle Lawson, co-founder of Soilcentric, a nonprofit for action organization designed to accelerate engagement in regenerative agriculture. We are here to answer the question, now what? We've developed a tool that shows you opportunities available in regenerative farming, ranching, and ecosystem restoration, so you can take action. Whether that's buying directly from a regenerative ranch, finding an opportunity on a regenerative farm, or developing a relationship with the land where you live. You can find us at soilcentric.org. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Regenerative agriculture. At its broadest, it's a system that works to support life in the soil and above ground. The movement around regeneration is evolving and energetic. It needs people to help shape it and define it. My name's Morgan. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kyle, Technical and Creative Director of Soilcentric. And this is Unconventional Paths, a new audio series by Soilcentric that's investigating the many ways to take part in the regenerative agriculture movement. We're interviewing people about their journeys into agriculture, the opportunities they're discovering and forging, the problems they're navigating, and how they're growing a more inclusive movement. Our first guest is Andrea Hatsukami. Social equity and, and food sovereignty are so important to regenerative agriculture as a movement. She's a livestock apprentice at Tomcat Ranch, a fully regenerative ranch in Pescadero, California. We talk with her about how she went from studying geophysics at the University of Washington to managing livestock, how food is a part of her identity, and how to make the regenerative movement more accessible. Hey, Andrea, thanks for joining us. We're excited to talk to you today. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about Tomcat? Yeah, Tomcat is an 1,800-acre cattle ranch, and um, it's on the central coast in California, about an hour south of San Francisco. It's super beautiful. Um, and a lot of it is quite hilly. I don't think that a lot of people consider it cattle ground, but um, but we have cows, and so a big part of it is that we do, it's like an education center. So not only do they have the ranching aspect of it, but we also, the apprenticeship program is is quite structured. And it's becoming more and more structured the more years that they do this. And the intent is to teach people who, like me, came into the internship very inexperienced with agriculture and help train them on not just the stockmanship and the animal husbandry side of it, but also the science behind what makes regenerative agriculture sort of good for the environment. That's great. And I was wondering if you could walk us through where your mindset is right now in terms of working or being an apprentice on a regenerative ranch and maybe it's changed since when you came in but I guess how are you feeling or how are you framing regenerative agriculture in your mind right now? In the very beginning when I came here I was more focused on the science side of things. I was really interested in learning about soil and water pollution when I was in school and that's sort of why I wanted to get into agriculture but the more time I spend on the ranch and the more time I spend talking to other farmers and ranchers and um, across a whole spectrum, like urban farmers and then ranchers who are from you know, New Mexico who are out on these tens of thousands of acres um, of just really rural, isolated land. I, I feel like something that's 
become much more important to me is how do we make the food system more equitable? How do we make sure that people who are in food deserts or people who are so um, oh, like distant from the food system and how the food is raised and processed can get food that's, you know, raised in a way that's, that's sustainable, that's regenerative. Um, I think that regenerative agriculture is a very beautiful field, but it's also both funded and sort of for the benefit of wealthy people, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Do you see a way to make it more equitable? I would really like to see, you know, the, the concepts that are taught in holistic management and in regenerative agriculture applied to a sort of low investment um, style of farming or ranching where, you know, you can raise livestock in these stacked guilds with like, you can be growing vegetables, you can be growing, you know, you can have an orchard, you can have chickens and sheep and cows and have it on the same piece of land because land is such a big factor when it comes to um, communities of color or disadvantaged communities being priced out of agriculture mm-hmm. um, and priced out of even buying this produce. Um, so I think that at Tomcat, what I found is that the most interesting thing to me is both learning the science and learning the agriculture aspect and the combination of the two and learning how to stack enterprises and stack interests, really, um, where we're planning our cow herd moves based on the I don't know, migration patterns that Mel is, Mel is the wildlife biologist is telling us about. So saying we have to stay out of these areas during this time of year because this type of bird will be here or this type of salamander will be here. And so understanding how all of these different systems sort of come together and you can make everything work essentially together. It's two obvious pieces. Of course, it's not simple to put them together and make a profit or (laughs) run a successful farm. But, um, But, you know, the planning, you can get results from it. So what you're talking about really reminds me that regenerative agriculture doesn't just mean taking care of a farm as or a ranch as a singular entity. It's about how do you incorporate the ranch's ecosystem into the greater California ecosystem. And that's paralleled in an economic sense. Regenerative agriculture is about land health, but also about creating a sustainable economy where people actually have access to the food that's grown in this holistic way. No, totally. I, I think that there's, there's such a distance that's created by a lot of agriculturalists, even within the regenerative agriculture sphere of like, here's the urban environment and here's the rural environment. Here's the farmers and here's the consumers. and and totally separate but but you know part of regenerative agriculture uh, core tenets i consider that are very very commonly sort of cast aside is that social equity and and food sovereignty are are so important to regenerative agriculture as a movement and where other of these sustainable movements have failed i think and and where commonly people have pointed out like Oh, organic food is great, but it's so expensive. How can we how can we tell people to eat organic food when it's it's priced so highly? And you know, that's I don't think that that comes as a fault of the organic farmers. I think that there's the system as a whole of food stimulation. Right, or, because for many it's not even available to buy 
Totally. Totally. From your journey perspective, um, was there a moment that you kind of transitioned from being more focused on the science to being more focused on the food sovereignty and land access? Like, was there like a pivotal moment or was that kind of a gradual thing? Um, I think that when I was in college, I was very focused on the science. And I think that equitable access to food and to fresh water in specifically, what I cared about most in, in college and sort of in that developmental time was freshwater access. I thought that was the end-all be-all of, of every issue, every climate change issue, and also um, agricultural, like societal issue issues came back to freshwater access. And I still believe that, but I think that I didn't really have the knowledge or the vernacular to articulate exactly what I wanted to work towards and exactly what I thought that I could do by getting into agriculture. And so I think that, you know, even at the beginning of the apprenticeship, I was really hoping to um, volunteer with with some programs that are, you know, an hour's drive of Pescadero within our community, really, um, that work on food sovereignty and work on food accessibility. But they were sort of like a, oh, I'll do my work, and then I hope I'll have time on the weekends to go do this volunteering. Um, but the farther and farther we got into the apprenticeship, I really thought, oh, this is something that's really important to me. And it's something that even though the work that I do at Tomcat, checking the cows in the morning and and working on soil trials might not seem directly related to food accessibility or food sovereignty, I think there's always, I work in the food system. So there's always a way to to marry that interest into the work that I do. Did you study science in college? I graduated with a degree in geophysics. So it wasn't very like social equity oriented in terms of that department but um but my focus was on on like water systems and i was hoping to study like irrigation and stuff after i graduated and then i started volunteering on a farm so oh tell us about that i volunteered on an urban farm on my college farm before for about a year before i came to tomcat and that was a really good experience for me what made you start volunteering there I just really wanted to get some agricultural experience, agricultural experience in the sense of like just trying to learn any basics that I possibly could. And so the year after I graduated was when I spent the bulk of time, that time sort of learning and volunteering and and getting to know the farm manager. She had run sheep for about 30 years in the Northeast. And I was like, I want to study irrigation technology. And like, I want to do all this sort of very academic go the academic direction. And she was like, well, before you do that and like get into the conventional agricultural space, um, you should work on a livestock farm first. Why do you think she suggested livestock to you? I think she had a good read on me that I was like, really wanted to go do something and didn't really know anything about the agricultural world. And she said, you're really committed to vegetable farming said, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> and she was like, okay, well, maybe you should go and explore other things first also. Because if you really care about water sustainability, there's a lot of work being done in in the marriage of livestock and, and farming as well. Um, and I just sort of stumbled upon Tomcat while, I don't know, browsing the internet. I think I was just like binge watching soil videos on Vimeo of all 
places. I don't know. Binge watching soil videos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a lot more casual than that sounds. Can you just describe what a soil video is? <laughs> a soil video is just like, I just really wanted to know the science of, of like, how does groundwater pollution happen from like farmed soils and stuff and so I was watching all these videos where they show like oh here's the here's the soil that has had like lots of pesticides in it and it was like a core of that soil and here's here's an organic farm with organic pesticides and then here's you know the adaptive grazing whatever and then they they put the water into these soil cores and you see what comes out of the bottom and I just found it. Oh man, I love that test. Yeah. <laughs> it's just very visually stimulating for someone who doesn't know anything about like soil, <laughs> soil biology. Um, that was but... seriously like one of the first things I saw that hooked me was the seeing the water runoff of um, conventionally grazed versus uh, regeneratively grazed. That was just totally eye-opening for me. What is the difference you're seeing? Basically how applying water to the top and seeing how on um, conventionally grazed uh, soil or land, um, water basically runs off in sheets and takes with it the topsoil. So you end up with this with this tray of of basically coffee water, um, and then um, very little water penetration into the actual oh. piece of earth. Um, and then as you proceed towards a regeneratively grazed uh, soil sample, um, you see very 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 little water running off the top. Very clear water if it does run off, and then. You actually see a lot of water being absorbed directly into that soil. So it's not actually visible in any tray um, that might be kind of underneath collecting the water. So it acts, it's like clearly a sponge. Yeah, I think a big distinction to make for people who are already uh, familiar with different types of grazing sort of on, on a basic level is that you hear a lot about rotational grazing. And anybody, a lot of people say, okay, well, you know, I've got a winter pasture and a summer pasture and I move them once a year. That's rotational grazing, right? And and in a technical sense, maybe, yes, that's rotational grazing. But the big distinction is that with adaptive grazing, yes, you have different paddocks, but you're you're not rotating them, rotating the herd through paddocks um, in this sort of rhythmic um, how do I how do I describe like a consistent not way. in a consistent pattern. Yeah. Yeah, the idea is that you're trying to create disturbance regimes um, based on all these different factors, like how much it rained that year or whether there was a fire in a certain area or, you know, if you're, all your water troughs broke on the east side of the ranch, then <laughs> you, would, you could be able to change your grazing plan in order to adapt to these different um, factors. And, and the effect of that is that you essentially are trying to, like, recreate this maybe a huge herd ran through this area once and then they didn't touch it for maybe even like a year or two years and so all the plant life can come back and it can be very vigorous and um and then you can come back and graze it again but instead of just hitting it based on timing and and never changing that pattern um you're sort of trying to work with nature which of course is a flawed practice because how much do we really understand about about right. nature and how it changes and how we're changing it? But it's very and interesting. And you're still manipulating the system. You're just mm -hmm. doing it in a way that mimics nature. We just did our, our dormant grazing plan for the dormant season because it's totally 
it's dried out here. There's very little green grass growing. And um, the other people on the livestock team and I were like, okay, we're going to put them here, here, and here. And, and the manager comes over and he said, well, you've grazed everywhere on the ranch at this point, right? And I was like, yay, we did it. And he's like, no, that's bad. <laughs> you shouldn't have hit every single paddock. You should leave stuff um, that that you can, in an emergency situation, go to and graze it. Like, let's say you go through this really fast and then you've got a whole month and a half and it's like, where do I put the cows? The biology hasn't hasn't come back and it hasn't reinvigorated. And so it was a learning process for me, of course. But it is interesting. Yeah, it's not about using up every little last resource you have. It's about trying to gauge, okay, when can I use this? And maybe I should save it. So you just graduated from college, you're watching soil videos, and you find Tomcat. Now, their internship program gets hundreds of applicants, and there's four spots. Yeah. You had a science-heavy background, but no agriculture experience. Well, a little agriculture experience. Correct. But what do you think set you apart in the application process? Haley, my coworker, said it was my vibes. But I think that it was... I think... um, I really, I volunteered for that year on the UW farm. And then I just spent a lot of time watching like soil videos and, and reading about different regenerative practices and and practitioners and grazers and producers and just hoping that something would stick in my brain and make me sound impressive. And I think that especially a place like Tomcat, where one of their focuses is to get people who weren't born into agriculture, into the agricultural world and sort of introduced them. And their internship does a really great job of that. Um, but I think that they there were definitely a lot of applicants who, you know, were like me. They went to school and thought, oh, this would be sort of interesting. And in whatever way they could, tried to pursue it in their free time or which of course is is a privilege in of itself but I think that people who express interest and take that interest and make it into something tangible maybe something resume worthy I don't know I think that really helps but just just talking and being informed um and in my interview I think being able to speak about everything that I had tried to do that wasn't on my resume, that was agriculturally focused, really helped me out. Was there anyone or any resources you used that directed your research? I just relied on the internet (laughs) Um, as like any, I just would look up random videos. I started watching, I started out when I first began trying to do my own research, watching like TED Talks because, you know, for better or for worse, they're very digestible. And um, and as somebody who like didn't really have any background or, well, didn't have any background in agriculture um, or the agricultural sciences, I found it very um, helpful to be able to say, oh, I listened to this video and these are the things that I found interesting and just typing in those <laughs> words um, into the web browser. But another thing is that um, just... 
being on the Yudav farm and speaking to people who had either worked on farms or woofed or were part of Seattle Tilth, which I think there's a Tilth program in, in California. It's like a um, incubator farm nonprofit. And speaking to those farmers, it was very helpful for me to try and get a grasp of like, what does what does the regenerative world look like? And what does the urban farming world look like? And and so I could get, you know, a pretty rudimentary view of that and then supplement all the knowledge that they had passed with any books or any articles that I had read. Once you entered into Tomcat's internship program, can you describe what that shift was like for you going from school to working on a ranch? It was, it felt like summer camp at first. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm getting paid to go to summer camp. That's great. Um, and it was very interesting trying to navigate the, first of all, the realization that like, this is a ranch and we're learning about all these different ranching things. Um, and it's also Tom Steyer owns Tomcat Ranch. Um, and so it's a, it's owned by very wealthy people. And I think Tomcat also, it's also a place where lots of, it's like an events venue. And so there's lots of people who are coming and going and, and constantly sort of being like, okay, I need to be in livestock mode and I need to like try and take as much as I can from the ranch manager bringing us around and being like, oh, this is how you ride an ATV. This is how you build an electric fence. This is what you're looking for when you're, when you're scoring, you know, body condition scoring for cows, um, which is just how we tell how healthy they are essentially. And, and then also there's an event going on this evening and these people who are in agricultural policy are going to be here. You should go because you're an intern and, and talk to them and try and learn as much from that all the shifting that needs to happen in order for you to get as much as you can out of the experience. Many overlapping contexts. Yeah, totally. <laughs> what is the most interesting project you've been a part of so far? At the University of Washington farm where I volunteered before Tomcat, um, I was working in this native plant garden and there was a, the tribal liaison for the University of Washington um, worked with me and with the farm manager mostly with the farm manager I was just sort of their grunt um but we're working on this project trying to get funding for native plant garden and then a series of botanical gardens around campus and this one of the big pushes was that there were lots of indigenous students on campus where they were accepted into school but then couldn't afford the meal plans and couldn't afford the food that was in the university district. And so, and I think that project really brought to my attention that the importance of food accessibility and the fact that there were students at the school that I went to that couldn't, couldn't afford food at all. And, and that project was really important to me because I, I had always said that I was interested in agriculture and I'd read a lot about different agricultural practices, but then to see um, and to hear about the need to grow food and to have this sense of urgency of like, we have to get this ground, you know, going, we've got to get it producing. Um, and I, I was bummed to not sort of stay there to continue on with that project um, because there were lots of, I don't know, different groups of people that you had to work with um, and 
learning about this, not just like applying for grants and trying to get funding, but also working with culturally significant food sources and being being respectful of that and being respectful of food ways and the importance of food um, to different people and not just treating it like, oh, I'm like, this is my fun pet project where I'm going to like try and grow something. It's like, no, this is a really important to, to lots of people. Not only is it for food, but it's also for culture and for, for wellness. From this conversation, it seems like food accessibility is really core to your belief system. And clearly, food inaccessibility is unjust. But why does it matter so much to you? In my upbringing, food is such an important thing. Like, when I go, my mom's family is Chinese, and and they all live in LA. And when we go down to visit them, there's not a moment that we're not planning our next meal. You finish breakfast, and it's like, well, what are we going to eat for lunch? Like, what do we need to get ready for lunch? And then it's just constant eating, and it's... and you know, I'm, I'm depending on which side of the family, second or third generation. And so there's a lot of um, culture that's passed on through food. And there's a lot of stories that are passed on by food. And I, I think that, you know, cooking is one of my favorite things to do, um, aside from watching soil videos. (laughs) And I just think that without food, I, I don't know who I would be or, or, how to express certain emotions it's easier to to you know give somebody a a plate of food or make a big dinner for your friends and then sit down and be like I appreciate you because you can say that through a meal (laughs) and especially if a meal is has ingredients that are meaningful to you Um, and I think that you know there's there's a lot of cultural genocide that happens in America and, and a lot of it can can occur through recipes not being passed down, through food not being available to people, um, through ingredients not being available to people. Um, I talked to a lot of, especially in the Asian farming community, the practice mm-hmm. of seed saving is so important because people come over um, from not just East Asia, but also in Southeast Asia and South Asia and folks who have been farming for generations and generations and they had come to America for a better life, but you don't want to just forget about everything that your family had learned, all that knowledge that was passed down. You want to keep those seeds and all the stories that come with it. I think that food has been such an important, it shaped me in a way that nothing else has. Um, and, And I hate to see the way that food can be used as a weapon, the lack of food, the lack of availability, and it can be used to suppress people. Um, and I just think that that's, that's a terrible thing. I think that regenerative agriculture, if it can really reach its potential and, and embrace the social equity side of the field, it's, it would be a very powerful tool to, to uplift people who don't have, I mean, basic basic needs that must be fulfilled, not just eating and having sustenance, but also having a culture and having a community. Right. So you're not reliant on purchasing your culture um, from the grocery store. You actually have autonomy over what you want your culture to be and how you want to actively participate in it. Totally. Totally. I think we're in a time with COVID that's made people aware of how unstable our food distribution system is or can be. How do you think regenerative ag can help with food sovereignty? 
I think that regenerative agriculture really touts these principles of low input and low stress, whether it's for livestock or for people. Um, and conventional agriculture is very difficult for folks to understand, even folks who have been farming for a long time because it's so heavily reliant on inputs, on chemical inputs, on these relationships between corporations and um, producers. And so the corn that you buy at the store, um, at the supermarket, you might never be able to grow corn like that. I think that it's totally inaccessible, not just in the separation of rural and urban communities, but also in the way that it's grown. I think that regenerative agriculture is not not even on the scale of Tomcat, but but just on the scale of like, well, how how do you get creative and find a way to grow food, even if the ground that you're around is is really poor, or you don't really have that much ground at all. You don't really have any any land to work with. Um, and I think that there's, you know, a lot of my education is focused on ranching and livestock, but um, I think there's a lot of room in regenerative agriculture to explore the ways that urban farming and like vertical farming can also have, you know, follow regenerative agricultural um, practices. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of work that's already being done on urban farms where you have rain gardens and you have different types of windbreaks and hedgerows and um, things to attract pollinators and birds in an urban landscape. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of permaculture that teaches that's all about your backyard farm um, and how everybody can have their own slice of food sovereignty. Right. It's like looking at the conditions and then figuring out how to make plants thrive under select parameters and doing that on a small scale gives people power to grow their own food yeah i think also the slow food movement like local food um is a big part i don't know how much regenerative agriculture i think like reducing your carbon footprint that sort of ties into it um but being able to connect people with local local agriculturalists and people who live in urban environments to these people anyone close by who could be growing food and of course in california it's a lot more it's a lot easier to do that than let's say in like in the northeast or or in the southeast if you're in a food desert in particular um but you know they've barely done that here so (laughs) i think that uh yeah i think that even if you can't grow your own food, knowing someone close by who can grow food and having a good relationship with them is very important. What do you still want to learn more about? So I'm really hoping in the next few years to learn a lot more about small livestock care, about intensive vegetable farming or gardening, whatever you want to call it, um, and sort of just being able to manage a multi-species multi-purpose operation um my real hope is to sort of go back to school one day and and um maybe go back in for education because i think that what we were doing at the college farm that i volunteered at was really interesting to me and 
you know, I have very limited experience teaching, but it was always something in my limited experience doing it. I, I found it very um, engaging. And I think that teaching kids about gardening and about the natural world with gardening being sort of a vector for that um, type of education is, I think it, it sounds really cool. And also if there's organizations that aren't totally corrupt all the time <laughs> who have lots of land in urban areas at schools. So um, to have like a little school farm would be awesome. Oh, I like that drawing that drawing that connection between who has land access and who is an organization that isn't morally bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So I think there is this misconception in agriculture that a farmer or rancher is white, male, and conservative. And and that's wrong because most farm workers these days do not match that profile. But, you know, in addition to COVID, we are in this time of social upheaval and you have participated in organizing protests to stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And in addition to all your interests in food sovereignty and land access, do you see this paradigm of who a rancher is shifting? And what's your role in that? Yeah, totally. I think that, um, you know, I've been, it's not like being radicalized. It's like waking up to the reality of the world in the past year and a half. Um, with regards to like, what do I have the capacity to do? I don't really have the capacity to be a lawyer or to be a politician. Um, and what's being done in regenerative agriculture and my ability to work outside and, and currently withstand the predominantly white male world that, that this is, um, will hopefully give me some tools that I need to make this a more welcoming and safe space for other people. Um, and of course it's like, I'm just one person joining a community of, of people of color and um, disadvantaged folks who, who have already been working towards the same thing towards land accessibility. And the reason I keep bringing up land accessibility is is that it's not just about the land, it's about the resources in general. And um, and that's really what, you know, it's not, it's not just the population of old white guys who keeps communities of people of color and queer people out of this space. What it is is the lack of resources on top of this sort of unsafe atmosphere that is... Um, that's perpetuated by racism and bigotry, really. The movement that is going on right now, I think it's the most inclusive that I, I feel like I've seen. And I'm not very old, so I haven't seen a lot, but it's, it gives me a lot of hope that all this land trauma and food trauma that people have been through can, can be healed as, as much as you know, growing food or just being in the outdoors can can heal that, those sorts of wounds. Thanks so much to Andrea Hatsukami for chatting with us about her journey. 
To see some of the resources that inspired Andrea, head to soilcentric.org. You'll also find additional resources to help you plan your path to regeneration. This episode was produced by us, Morgan Levy and Kyle Lawson. Diana Donlin is our executive producer. Thanks to the Climate Emergency Fund for supporting this series. Our theme music is by Mestizo Beat. Stay tuned for the next episode of Unconventional Paths.